Every copy of Scripture will be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to finish out uh, Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. And I kind of went back and forth. I thought, well, should I preach a Palm Sunday message? Should I continue our series in the book of Hebrews? And kind of as I looked over the text and and uh, looked over what it was talking about, I thought, well, you know what? This kind of fits Palm Sunday, so we'll just finish out chapter 9 of Hebrews, and then next week we will have a... Uh, Easter message. We'll take a little bit of break, but Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28 this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of Hebrews chapter 9, 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been crucified once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This message is simply titled, Once for all, once for all. When I was in seminary, I took a class called hermeneutics, which is just a uh, fancy um, word for biblical interpretation. And uh, so I, I took that class, and and in that class, we ended up having a crash course in homiletics, which is just a fancy term for the art of preaching. Anyway, in the in that crash course, we had to prepare several sermons over text that the professor had given to us, and we had to use the outline method that he wanted us to use in order to prepare those sermons. And so you had to determine the subject of the passage, and then you had to break down what the author was saying, and this was called the compliment. I will spare you all the details of going through that process, but then you would take that compliment and form it into a timeless principle, and then you would take your timeless principle and you would convert that into an application. And so by the time you were done, you were taking uh, the main point and restating that point differently in three ways. And then you'd move on to point number two and do the exact same thing, restating it in three ways different ways. And then at the end of the message, you would summarize what you just said. I once had a professor tell me that, uh, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you just told them. And the idea in my crash course and in that, in, in, in homiletics and in, in that saying that my professor told me, the idea was repetition. We all 
know that repetition plays a major role in what we learn and what we pick up on. And you say, well, why do you bring that up? Well, because that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. Remember, he was writing to a group of people who were being tempted to turn away from Christ and go back to their former Jewish religion. And for this reason, he's repeatedly focusing them on the truth of the superiority and the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and His death for our sins. He's beating the drum over and over and over and over again to turn away or to, uh, or to turn away from Christ and to turn to anything else for salvation is absolutely futile and spiritually fatal. Christ is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. The priesthood pointed to Jesus. The sacrifices pointed to Jesus. And even the religious rituals were fulfilled by Jesus. And if we trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then we escape God's judgment. However, if we trust in something else, whether it be our good works, some sort of religious system, or our heritage, or anything else, we will die under the judgment of God. So what is at stake is of eternal significance. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. So it bears repeating again, because salvation is impossible apart from the cross of Christ as the only provision. So the author continues to drive the point home. Verse 24 is a repeat of chapter 9, verse 11, as well as chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Verse 25 and 26 are a review of chapter 9, verse 12, and verse 27, and verse 28. And it makes it clear that, and in verse 28, it makes it clear that Christ will do all that he's going to do at the second coming, and it is either salvation or judgment. So me, being the nice guy that I am, I thought that I would put this whole sermon into one overarching statement that we will then set out to see how the text reveals that statement to us. So here's the statement. The once for all sufficient sacrifice of Christ brings judgment or salvation. The once for all sufficient sacrifice of Christ brings judgment or salvation. So we're going to break that statement down into two parts from our text this morning. First, the once for all sufficient sacrifice of Christ. We're going to break that down. The once for all sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Look with me at verse 23. It starts off with the word thus, which is, which is a reference back to what he just said. And it's like saying therefore, when we read the word therefore. And in fact, some of your translations might have the word therefore. Uh, for roughly 1,400 years, the will of God was the death of His Son. And, and it, it, it was that the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, would be a foreshadow, or would be foreshadowed in history among the Jewish people through the Old Testament. That's, that's what was, the plan was. That the sacrificial system and their worship and, and the tabernacle, them going into the tabernacle, the, the temple, all that would be a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Look what he says. That these things, the tabernacle, 
and the vessels and all the relics and the things in the temple, what were they? They were copies of heavenly things. And since these things were copies, they were ceremonially cleansed by the blood of sacrificial animals. This is how God ordained it. This was the plan that they would be earthly types of heavenly realities. Look what he says. These animal sacrifices are inadequate to deal with what ultimately matters. You see, the copies is not what ultimately matters. What matters most is the heavenly things themselves. And in order to deal with them and cleanse them, there must be a better sacrifice. So what is the better sacrifice? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. The author uses the, a plural reference to, refer, uh, to make a reference to one sacrifice of Christ. That his sacrifice was once for all. And it gathers into one sacrifice all of the Old Testament sacrifices. Now, Stop and think about that for just a moment. That Christ's sacrifice was so multifaceted that it required many sacrifices to serve as adequate copies of his singular sacrifice. But verse 23 raises a question. At least it raises one for me. What are these heavenly things? And why do they need to be purified? What is it saying? Is, is heaven somehow defiled and it needs to be purified? Is there sin in heaven? There are some views that, 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 that would say this means some, uh, some say, say this. They say that this verse means that, uh, because Satan has been in heaven, then it has to go through a purification process. Others say, it is because there are spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places like we read about in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 and how it tells us that. And some say that, that, that then, then it has to be purified for that reason. Some say it's more of a dedica uh, dedicatory consecration. And so they're consecrating the heavenly things like the dedication of the tabernacle. And while I appreciate those attempts to explain the verse, I believe the author answers what is being purified in the Scripture. He does this in verse 24. Why did Christ enter the true holy place in heaven with His better sacrifice? He tells us why He entered in, and He tells us what He is purifying. It says what? On our behalf. Or for us. Why does Christ enter on our behalf? He enters for us. And I think that reveals two things to us. First, we know the people of God are the dwelling place of God. If you know Christ as your Savior, then God dwells. He is a dwelling place in you. And how can we be free from defilement so that God may dwell in us individually or even corporately? How can we possibly be a fit habitation for God to dwell inside of me? Well, we need to be cleansed and so that we can be the dwelling place of God. And the only way that we can be cleansed is through 
regeneration by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So Christ's blood alone, as we looked at last week, cleanses us from dead works to serve a living God. And it makes us uh, an habitation for God. It makes us to be able to be that dwelling place because we are cleansed. However, I think there's also a second meaning here as well. And that is this. Christ will fully cleanse us in heaven. The reason why heaven needs cleansing is because we will be there. And it needs cleansing to the measure in which we might defile heaven. If as sinners we're going to appear before God, we must be cleansed from sin or the presence of God would be polluted by us. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? Well, if I showed up to church, the church would fall in. You ever hear somebody say that? You know, or the church would burn down or something along those lines. That people say that kind of thing. And what they're saying, what are they saying? You, you know what they're saying. They're saying that they are so sinful, that they are so dirty, that they are so defiled, that they couldn't come to church because, because the church would just fall in. Because that's how defiled they are. They're such a dirty, rotten, scoundrel of a sinner. There's no way that the church could bear their sinfulness and the church would fall in. Sometimes we have that view of heaven. We are so dirty. We would only pollute heaven if we go there. But what God is saying in this passage of Scripture is come. Come, you filthy wretch. Come, those of you who are completely defiled by sin. Come and bring your sin-stained life. Come to my heaven. And why? Because my son is there. And his death will not be in vain. And His blood cleanses every stain. He will make you clean so that you can be with me forever in perfect holiness. So come, because my Son's blood cleanses all. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Come. This is why Christ came and died, not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. The once for all sufficient sacrifice of Christ cleanses us that we can enter heaven. And He did it for us. Then in verses 24 through 26, we have this description of the better sacrifice, how Christ achieved our welcome into heaven. You see that the people were having a hard time letting go of the physical ritual and the sacrifices of the Jewish temple. And so the author is making it clear that Christ 
did not enter into the holy place made with human hands, which are a mere copy, but He entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And we know that under the Jewish system, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year, and then uh, he would do that to represent the people before God. But Jesus is in the true holy place on our behalf. Christ's sacrifice was not like the sacrifice of the Jewish high priests. They went in yearly into the Holy of Holies with animal sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. But Christ did not enter heaven to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters to the holy places every year with a blood that's not of His own. If that were the case, then Jesus would have to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. If Christ were to follow the pattern of the high priest, then every year... Jesus Christ would have to die over and over and over again. Furthermore, since the sin He covered included the sin of Adam and Eve, He would have, it, have to have had to begin that, that yearly dying at the foundation of the world. And just the thought of that is ridiculous. If Jesus had to die repeatedly, then His death would be weak and useless. If it had to be done repeated every year for centuries, then there's no victory in His death. Then we can't, can't sing my victory because there is no victory. There is no glory in His death if He has to repeat it every year. There is no value in His death. The cross is the apex of God's purpose through the ages to glorify Himself. It is at the cross where we see the perfect justice of God put on full display. If God simply forgave our sins without any payment for the penalty, then He would not be a just God. But the death of His Holy Son satisfied His wrath by paying the penalty that we deserve. The cross is a display of the amazing love and grace of God. Any system of salvation that magnifies man and minimizes the cross is not from God. It is indeed at the cross where we see the glory of God put on full display. Look at verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Those words put away are used in a technical or juristic sense. And it means to annul or to cancel. He has annulled or canceled our sin. This nullification of sin is in totality and without qualification. It means that every form and degree and in every age of human history in retrospect and in prospective it reaches to the past and into the future now i need you to listen closely to what i'm about to say because this is often missed what this means is that when christ died he paid the penalty for the sins of all of his elect people he did not pay the penalty for only some of the sins of His elect people. He paid the penalty for all of the sins of His elect people. Before the cross and after the cross. If He did not pay the penalty for all of the sins of His elect people, then His death would be in vain. Now, I know that that may go against something that you've been taught your entire life. But I believe when we look at the whole of Scripture and we truly study it and we read things like what we read here throughout the book of Hebrews, it makes it clear that the atonement is 
particular, not general. I know that sometimes that upsets people because they want to say that Christ paid for all of the sins of all people. But if that were true, if He really paid for all of the sins of all people, then all people would be saved because He paid for all of their sins. And Scripture flat out denies that all people will be saved. If Jesus only died for some of the sins of all people, that also makes no sense. Because He would have to at least die for the sin of unbelief or else no one could ever believe. And if He died for the sins of unbelief, then all would believe. And we are right back to square one. Some would say that Christ dies for the sins of everyone, but that is only applied to those who believe. That is terrible theology. Because you have now limited the atoning work of Christ's death by sinful man. Christ wants to save everyone, but He can't save anyone unless man believes. So Christ is now limited by your human response. The correct biblical view is to say that Christ died for all of the sins of some people, namely for all of the sins of the elect. If you would like to read more about that, then I would encourage you to pick up John Owen's book, The Death of Death and the Death of the Cross. You can get it from Banner of Truth Publishing. It's a good book. And it makes a really long, drawn-out argument for what I just wrapped up for you. Here is the issue. What was God's plan when He put His own Son on the cross? What was His plan? Was it to make salvation possible for everyone but certain for no one? Was that His plan? Just to make it possible for everybody but not certain for anyone. Was it then theoretically possible that Jesus would die for everyone and possibly no one would be saved? Because they would never respond? Or was it God's purpose and design to make salvation certain for His elect? I believe the Bible is clear. Christ did not come and die to leave salvation up to fallen sinful man to make a choice, but rather He came to us as Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 tells us, to save His people from their sins. He came to lay down His life for his sheep, as John chapter 10 tells us. He loved the church and gave himself for her, as Ephesians chapter 5 tells us. He was offered once to bear the sins of many, as verse 28 tells us. He will not falter, nor will he fail in his purpose to save all that the Father has given him, as John chapter 6 tells us. His sacrifice was once and for all, and was indeed sufficient to put away all of our sin once and for all. Now some would say, how can I know then that Christ died for my sins? And that's an important question for someone to ask. And I also believe that that answer is not all that complicated. So are you aware of your need of forgiveness? If so, then that's the first step. Scripture is clear that Christ did not come to take away the sin from those who think they're righteous. Are you aware that you cannot do anything to earn or pay for your sin? 
That is another revealing. That you have knowledge that Christ died for your sins. We can't pay for our own sins through penance or anything else. You can do all the good deeds that you can possibly think of the rest of your life, and it will never pay for your sin debt. Even the Old Testament sacrificial system could not permanently deal with the debt of sin. Only Christ, by His death on the cross, can deal with our sin problem. If you trust in Christ and in Him alone, then you can be confident that your sins are dealt with and that Christ died for your sins. You say, well, how can I be sure that Christ died for your sins? Do you trust that Christ died for your sins? If so, then you're sure that Christ died for your sins. I love what Charles Spurgeon said in his sermon, The Putting Away of Sin, over verse 26. Let me read it to you. If there be any here who are conscious of the burden of their past guilt, are quickened so as to be sensitive of the curse, can hear the rolling thunder of the impending wrath of God, to them it will be a great joy to hear of one who can put sin away. It must be for such as you are that the great Redeemer in the end of the world came among men. He could not come to put away sin from those who had no sin or from those who by their own efforts could put away sin on their own. It must be then for such as you are who are hopelessly sinful, hopelessly so, I say, if viewed from any aspect short of the work of Jesus Christ, it must be for such as you that He has come. If your house were on fire... If your house were on fire, you would be rejoiced to hear that the fire engines were coming down the street for you would feel an absolute certainty that they were coming to you because your house was in blaze and no one else's was. If there were appointed today a commissioner for the relief of such traders as might be in difficulties, whose capital was little and whose liabilities were great, if you were in that condition, you would feel at once that a hope was held out to you because the commissioner's office supposed a condition of circumstances in which you were found. The news of Christ coming into the world to put away sin sounds like the joy blast of silver trumpets of jubilee to those who know themselves to be full of sin, who desire to have it put away, who are conscious that they cannot remove it themselves and are alarmed at the fate which awaits them if the sin be not by some means blotted out. I pray that no matter how dirty with sin you are, that you will see the light of the glory of Christ and believe. Second, when Christ comes, remember I told you I was going to break that statement down in two, when Christ comes again, He brings judgment or salvation. Verse 27 and 28, we have this comparison between the death of everyone and the death of Christ. So the beginning of verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once. And then the beginning of verse 28, So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. But in the second half of these verses, we have this contrast if we pay attention. And so we see that we die once, and then comes a judgment, and you would think that the next verse then would be like um, Christ would die once and come back for judgment. But that's not what it says. Instead, 
Christ dies once and comes again not for judgment, but to not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting Him. The point of this comparison is to show how utterly dependent on Christ we really are. He is strong and brings salvation from His death, and we are weak and desperate and in need of salvation because we stand under judgment. There are four truths I want to quickly look at from these verses. First, all people have, a, have an appointment with death. All people have an appointment with death. Now, there are a few exceptions. Enoch and Elijah did not die. And those who are living when Christ returns, apart from them, everyone will die. We have an appointment with death. And you will keep your appointment. No matter what. Who is it that makes the appointment? Do we get out our phone? You know, we got our cell phones. Do we get out our phone and say, let me schedule this appointment with death? Do we get out our pocket calendar? Say, well, let me write my appointment with death in my pocket calendar. No. I was just talking to a pastor last week and one of the, uh, their church members was uh, supposed to die months ago. They gave the person between 4 and 14 days to live. I believe that was in October. And they lived clear until last week. You know why? Because the doctor doesn't make your death appointment. God makes the appointment. We like to say that death is a natural process, but it's not. Death is a reality because Adam and Eve sinned and human death entered into the world. God gave the curse of death to everyone. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 tells us, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Death is not just some sort of natural cycle or natural process. Death is a curse from God. It's a curse on our sin. However, for the believer, the sting of death is removed. By the cross. But death is a reminder of our sin and God's justice. It's not an appointment made by natural process, but an appointment made by God and His sovereignty. God has sovereignly appointed our birth and our death, and no matter how hard we try to control it, we can't. We can't control either one of them. We try, trust me, we tried. My wife and I, we try to control the birth of some of our kids because, you know, she had babies early. And we tried to control the birth of one of them, but he was still born in the front seat of our van. Okay? We can't control birth or death. Listen to how David said it in Psalms. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Death may seem like it is an accident, but there are no accidents with God. No one lives a day less or a day longer than God ordains. Cancer does not decide your death. Your enemy does not decide your death. Satan does not decide your death. God does. And that should give us comfort. God has His reasons and His purposes. And we may not know them, but we can trust Him. God sees that we will keep our appointment 
with death. He plans it and brings it into pass. And even when we experience loss, we can remember the words of Job. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is not to promote some sort of fatalism in our life or some sort of reckless attitude like, well, I'm going to die anyway, so I might as well just go jump off this 10-story building. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that everything is governed by an all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God who knows exactly what He's doing, no matter how we may perceive it. Our life is in God's hands. And we will all die at the appointed time and wherever and whenever He says so. Do you remember the resurrected Christ? He's speaking with Peter in John chapter 21. And this is when Jesus is telling Peter to feed his sheep. And then Jesus said to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then we have this in the next verse. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Jesus tells Peter, your appointment's already been made. Your appointment's been made. This is how you're going to die, Peter. Peter had no control over it. But then a little bit later, Peter says, well, what about John? What about John over there, Lord? Listen to how Jesus responds. If it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Basically, my will for John's life is none of your business, Peter. If he remains because I want that to happen, then that's what's going to happen. The Lord's in control of how and when we die. Death is certain. And you can rest assured that it's not Satan, it's not disease, and it's not faith or fate that makes the choice. It's Christ Himself, our sovereign Creator and King, that makes the choice of when and how you will die. Not only do all people have an appointment with death, but I want us to see this. Without Christ, people die and face judgment. Without Christ, people die and face judgment. After you die comes judgment. There's no such thing as reincarnation, but death is also not the end of our existence. We do not come back as something else. We die and then comes the judgment. But we also are not simply material beings that die and decompose into the ground. This verse also refutes the idea of evolution that says there is no such thing as life after death. But there is such a thing for all people all people have life after death and some of those people will experience a life of damnation and some will experience a life in heaven. This also refutes any idea where people think that the will or that they will somehow get another chance to receive Christ after they die. Death is final and then the judgment. Why do you think the scripture says today is the day of salvation? It's urgent if we refuse the cross as the instrument of salvation. Ultimately it comes to as an instrument of judgment. If we think we can put off trusting in Christ forever, we have been made an eternally fatal mistake. 
God will hold us accountable for whether we trusted him and worshipped him and followed his ways in this life. When the text tells us that, that we will face judgment without Christ, it's not something to be taken lightly. Satan is not some red guy in a jumpsuit running around with a pitchfork. And hell is not a place where it's just warm. And it's like, you know, you're at the beach or something. Judgment is a great act of divine vengeance poured out on those who do not know Christ as Savior. Now it's important to note that believers in Christ do not come into judgment. But as John tells us, they have passed out of death and into life. Believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. So the deeds that we have performed in the flesh that are faithless will be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. And any deeds that come out as gold, silver, and precious stones will be purified. And that will be the basis of our reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And so we have an appointment with death. And without Christ, people die and face judgment. Now, Christ died once for our sins and is coming again for our salvation. Christ died once for our sins, coming again for our salvation. Look at verse 28. Christ died once to bear the sins of many. That's a clear refutation of Roman Catholic practice of the Mass, where Christ is seen as being repeatedly sacrificed in the elements which they believe become the actual body, the actual blood of Christ, after the priest has blessed it. Catholic theologians say that the priests are making present the eternal and timeless sacrifice of Christ, meaning it is over and over again. Granted, the average Catholic has no clue what is going on in the Mass, and they don't really understand what is supposedly taking place. But if they have truly perceived Christ as Savior, that God forgives all of their sins and imputes His righteousness on them, then then if they truly understood that then, and understood the Catholic Mass, then they wouldn't be partaking of it. What we must understand from this verse is that the death of Christ bears our sin. That's the heart of the Gospel. That's the heart of God's plan for redemption. When Christ died, He bore sins. He took on sins that are not His own. He suffered for the sins of other people so that they could be free from sin. This is the answer to our sin debt. Verse 28 says that he bore the sins of many. And verse 26 says that he put away sin. How can we possibly be right with God? Through Jesus Christ. He took the sin of many. He took our sins to the cross and died there. That death that we deserved, he took. And when Christ comes back, it's not about the sin that you and I have committed. That issue's been resolved. When He put sin away, He took care of it. It's not to deal with sin. When He comes back, it's to save us from judgment. When He comes back, He comes back to save. Death is not a punishment for the Christian because our sin has been put away by the death of Christ. He took our punishment. And when He comes again, it will be for salvation of those who eagerly 
await him. I've shared this with you before, but salvation has three tenses to it. We are saved in the past, the moment we trust in Christ. We are being saved as God works in our daily lives, bringing about our sanctification. And we will be saved when Christ comes again, as First John chapter 5, verse 2 puts it. When he appears, we will be like him. And then he answers why we will be, we will be like him. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So we have an appointment with death. Without Christ, people die and face judgment. Christ died for our sins and is coming again for our salvation. Now let's answer the question that is on most people's minds when they read this. And that is this. Who are the many? Who are the many? Those who are saved eagerly await Christ's return. Those who are saved eagerly await Christ's return. The many are those who are eagerly awaiting his return. Let me give you the picture. It's the day of atonement. The high priest takes the blood and he disappears out of sight. He's behind the veil. He goes in to make atonement for the sins of the people. The people are outside waiting. It seems like he's behind the veil for hours, even though it's mere minutes. Because the people are eagerly awaiting for him to reappear. And finally, he comes out again and the people rejoice. And they sigh a sigh of relief because now they know that God has accepted their offering and their sin has been covered. Our high priest has gone into the true holy of holies in heaven by his own blood. He has passed out of our sight. We don't see him. We don't even know what Jesus looks like. We have no clue what He looks like. We don't see Him. You don't, you don't have a conversation with Jesus. You may put a picture of Him in your mind, which we could talk about whether that's a violation of the second commandment or not. But you, you may think that you, you, you are talking to Jesus, and, and you can. You talk to Jesus through God and or you talk to God through Jesus, I should say, and but we don't know what he looks like. He's passed out of our sight. But we eagerly await to see him. Because when we do, all of the promises of our salvation is revealed. Here's the question Is that the kind of faith that you have today? Let me ask you, do you eagerly await the coming of your Lord Jesus Christ? Our eager expectation is a sign that we love Him and we believe in Him. Our eager expectation is a faith that, that has a desire to be with Christ. But I caution you, because there is a faith that desires to only escape hell, and that is a false faith that will not save because it does not produce an eager expectation in one's life for Jesus Christ. That sort of faith does not want Christ to return because it wants to live its life and gain all of the things of the world that it can possibly gain. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me. 
but also to all who have loved His appearing. Listen, Jesus died once for all and He's coming back again. And if because you know Christ as your Savior, then you are eagerly awaiting His return that He is not coming for judgment, but for righteousness. But if you are not eagerly awaiting His return, what then? He, what, why does He come? Sadly, He is coming to bring judgment. Don't be mistaken if you are not eagerly awaiting His return because you don't know Him. He is coming to bring judgment. Do you long for Christ to come? Is He your treasure? Because that's the faith that saves. So I urge you today Turn from the way of the world and turn to Christ in eager anticipation for the day that He will come again and take us to be with Him. There's a story that is told that years ago in a frontier town, a horse bolted and ran away with a wagon that had a little child in it. The young man risked his life to catch the horse and stop it and rescue the child. Sadly, the rescued child grew up to become a lawless man. One day he stood before a judge to be sentenced for a serious crime. The prisoner recognized the judge as the same man who years before had saved his life. He pled for mercy on the basis of that experience, but the words from the bench silenced all his pleas. Young man... When I was, then I was your savior. Today I am your judge and I must sentence you to be hanged. Listen to me. You can't wait until Jesus returns and you can't wait until after you die to decide whether he's going to be your savior or your judge. Nobody gets that privilege. Today he offers salvation to everyone who will trust in him. And if we do not come to him in faith, one day we will stand before him as judge. And so I urge you to turn from the world and turn to Christ. Will you die and face judgment? Or will you trust in Christ and receive salvation? And if you have trusted in him, then we have peace and joy that we must bear fruit in our lives. We await His return, but we don't do so idly. While we, while we wait, we serve and we worship Him with all of our lives. We bear witness to a lost world that desperately needs Jesus Christ. We let the world see that Jesus is our King and that we are eagerly awaiting the day when salvation comes and Jesus Christ returns to take us to be with Him. Are you in eager anticipation of that day? And do others see that in your life? Here in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. I ask you to respond today. Maybe today you don't know Christ as your Savior. And today, you want to confess Him. You want to know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you just need to pray today. Maybe you need to come forward and 
and come to, to the altar and pray, or maybe you just need to pray in your pew. Maybe you need to say, Lord, I'm, I'm not bearing the fruit in my life, so I'm not eagerly anticipating your return. I'm just kind of going through the motions of this whole Christian thing, and it's not evident in my life that I love you and live for you. I don't know. I don't know how God may have used this message to speak to you, but we want to give you the opportunity to respond to it this morning. Let's close a prayer.